fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Hey everybody, welcome to Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan, my name is Brandon. This is part three of Metallicast Black Summer, my 10-week chronological track-by-track breakdown of the infamous, I said it, the infamous, I'm going to just use that word every single week because people want to call me on my typo, my the infamous Black Album, and as Jason Long and I uh, discussed Last week in part two, um, it could be considered a bit infamous, uh, depending on who you speak to. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, Jason Long's not with me today, but I'm very happy to say that I'm joined by another returning guest. I think I was trying to figure out the math this morning, and I'm pretty sure this is his fifth appearance on Metallicast. He is everybody's favorite music journalist and St. Anger expert. Mr. Richard S. He. Hello, the infamous Richard S. He. <laughs> and so you have been on the show. Um, we had a general conversation about St. Anger, uh, about Metallica and their place in pop music. We had a track by track breakdown of the St. Anger album. We suffer through, we did it again. <laughs> oh, that's infamous. And that, that is an, a perfect example of what is infamous. And we did um, MTV Icon Metallica, which had its infamous moments. Yeah. It really did. Yeah. I was um, surprised you didn't play Snoop's version of Sad But True again in the last episode. But there you go. <laughs> I, you know why? Because I think I... Um, well, I definitely have played that during the We Did It Again episode, I believe, right? Yeah. 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 And then we talked about an MTV icon. And Richard, I just love the Metallicast Militia too much. We I already subjected them to about <laughs> six hours of St. Hanker talk between our two We've episodes. tormented them enough. Yeah. <laughs> so this is oh, your boy. first appearance on Metallicast, where we're actually not going to talk about something um, from the St. Anger era, as I call them, the early 2000s there. Uh, we're we're about yeah. uh, twelve years before talking about track three on the Black Album, uh, a track named "Holier Than Thou." And Richard, before we continue, um, yeah, no clue I was going to do this, but I I'm a little bit pissed at you. Oh, so why? I have to I have to air a little bit of uh, grievance for everybody. Um, you know, go on, Richard. No more will the crap roll out your mouth again. You have not changed since last time you were here. Your brain is still gelatin. You know, let the little whisper circle around your head. Why don't you worry about yourself instead? Uh. Who are you? Where you been? Where are you from? It's like the gossip is burning on the tip of your tongue. You I just lie so much. much. <laughs> I could go on and on and on. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I uh, will. And you believe me. No, I will not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are talking about Holier Than Thou, and God knows what else will come up in conversation. Uh, it seems like all of our talks circle back to St. Anchor, so I apologize in advance <laughs> if that comes back up again. Um, but 
I say, let's jump right into this. So this is sort of the first... If the Black Album has a deep cut... I mean, it's hard to say a deep cut on that album. I feel like it's such a mammoth behemoth of a record. Uh, but if this album has deep cuts, this is sort of the first one that we are tackling because it's track three off two monster... It's the first song you hear after two monster hits, Inter Sandman, Sabatrue, and then you hear this, which is sort of the first hint of thrash metal on the record. I would not call it thrash, but it's sort of the first hint of it on the Black Album. Yeah, I agree. It's like one of the fastest songs in the Black Album, but then again, it's still not like a true thrash tempo, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah, I think this and like Through the Never are probably the only like really up-tempo songs, right? Those two and the last track, The Struggle Within. Yeah, true. Yeah. I would say those are me, the... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, for me, Holy Than Thou is like... I feel like it's the most underrated track on this album, I would say. At least from my perspective. That's mm-hmm. what has brought me here today to hopefully make a case for it. <laughs> Rick, I'm interested in hearing your case because, you know, I was sort of sending out a little feelers about this song prior to recording with you and this song gets a very positive reaction and i was on youtube checking out cover Mm. songs and this and that and the comments overly positive about this song and do not get me wrong i like this song i i there's not a bad song on the black album in my humble opinion um but i need you to i'm gonna play a little bit of devil's advocate this episode and i need you to fight your cause because in my opinion this is um not the weakest song on the record but one of the weaker ones Mm. if if i have to rank these holier than thou is going to be you know in the bottom five sure for me i think it's top half but like maybe just you know it is hard next to all those mammoth songs but um no, I, I really love it. I think um, it's interesting because it, to me, it feels like something Metallica had never really done before. I mean, the lyrical themes are like kind of James's typical uh, themes of control, of obsession, of arrogance. But even those are voiced in a way that feels like really different, you know? I can't imagine him yeah. saying, no more the crap rolls that in your mouth again on a previous episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's um, something a bit more, like, straightforward about it to me. Yeah, and I I definitely get the picture, and I wonder if that was sort of, you know, uh, Injustice for All was such this uh, progressive record, and the Black Album musically was sort of the band's response to that, where they wanted to yeah. strip things down, have better production... Um, more s- straightforward, more f- uh, not not necessarily straightforward songs, but more focused, concise yeah. songs. And I wonder uh, when you look at the lyrics of "Injustice for All," I feel like the lyrics are also very involved. They're very political, very um, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle, but. You know, you know uh, James Hetfield is sort of, in my opinion, 
at uh, and, and moments really in Just for All Album is showcasing. Is he's doing the Slayer where he seemed to be next uh-huh. to like looking in a dictionary or a thesaurus for some fancier words thrown in there that not a part perhaps of his regular vocabulary. And I feel like holier than thou lyrically is sort of the opposite of that, where it's just more of a, just very blunt and a little bit more straightforward. He's almost playing like the everyman, I want to say. Right. Feels like he's railing against the man or something. Um, but yeah, you're right. More straightforward. And um, I actually just checked. This is the shortest song on the Black Album at three minutes and 48 seconds. Um, yeah, which is really interesting because yeah. this song, I think, I think Kirk must have described it as like, no, it was James for like Rolling Stone, I think a few years ago, described it as um, complex but simple. And I guess what he's talking about is the way the song kind of wraps around itself because you really only have one riff, one or two riffs, right? The, the, yeah. Uh, the, 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 and the kind of dribbler feel. The, 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 but they kind of play with that and rearrange it so many different ways in like three minutes and 48 seconds that I find it just endlessly fascinating. You know? Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is almost like a pop thing more than a metal thing. You think of yeah. metal as having like a ton of different riffs and sequence, but this is like, hey, we picked two and like we do as much with it as possible. And that's yeah, that... something like very new to me for Metallica at this point. Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, point you made because that's something I noticed uh, Metallica did um, a lot during... Um, some solo sections in past songs, like especially the more progressive ones, but it, there'd be, you know, 20 other riffs mixed in. It was not just yeah. a whole song uh, built around like variants of one riff. It was, you know, maybe the, a solo section or harmony section built around variants of one riff. Uh, but within, you know, a more complex eight, nine minute song. Um, and this is something I think you saw you see a lot more, um, more of them doing in albums that follow, even on load and reload, where it's just a little bit more about feel and groove, and um, you know the band starts playing around a little bit more rhythmically um, than perhaps they did previously. That's a good point uh, that you make about the song because this is sort of the one of the first instances where we really see a song um, where Metallica builds the whole thing around that concept, whether it was intentional or not. Yeah, totally. Um, one thing you mentioned last episode was that Bob Rock compared Sad But True to Cashmere in terms of that feel and that detuning. Yeah. And um, I actually think Holy Than Tao references Zeppelin as well, because you've got Lars doing that drum feel, that da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, which to me is very much a reference to rock and roll by Zeppelin. Like, it's almost the same pattern. Right. Yeah, and also, like, in a kind of 4-4 setting where it feels like, almost feels like he's playing with the time signature or something, but no, I think it's just a straight 4-4. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, in interviews that follow the Black Elm, Lars Ulrich sort of, uh, (laughs) he sort of took it upon himself to take the blame for uh, this not <laughs> this record not being Thrasher because of the way he approached the drums, you know he mm. he said he was doing more of a you know 
and this was something obviously that he would develop even more so on low and reload, but more of like an ACDC uh, backbeat rather than, yeah. you know, the double bass and the punk uh, drumming, you know, that we would see previously in the thrash years. Um, and we also didn't have the crazy time signatures and more offbeat stuff and everything like that. So everything is a little bit more streamlined. So it's interesting that you make that note because I think generally his drumming is a little bit more traditional starting on the black album. And that's a big part of why it sounds the way it does is the drumming. Totally. Like it's, um, it's groovier, I would say too. Yeah. I think so. Like even in the beat, uh, even in the verse of Oli Than Thou, he's just doing like the classic backbeat, like duh, 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 duh. But to yeah. me, there's like tons of feel, you know, when he hits that symbol on two, you like, it's like, you know, it's Lars. Yeah. You do it once. You can identify yeah, yeah, yeah. it straight away. Yeah. Totally. And, and um, yeah, go ahead. Another thing I'll note is um, the vocal harmonies in this song. Like another thing you would get from Metallica in the past. Um, mm. In the verses, you have like multiple Jameses um, sound like a chorus of himself. And like Sandman has that too. Um, I think Nothing Else Matters has that too, but then again, you know, that's kind of the Bob Rock influence, getting them to sound fuller while still right. sound, sounding very heavy and very present. And I might have said this uh, in part two uh, when we're talking about Sad But True, but uh, to quote Bob Rock, or at least to paraphrase him, um, you know, he wanted to make an album that sounded like the band did live. Uh, you know, when he would go back and listen to Master Puppets and Justice for All and then see them in concert, he was like, you guys sound, you guys have such a large, a lot more sonically diverse sound than you're recreating on record. And he wanted to take that, what he heard in person and duplicate that on record and just give the band a fuller, larger, more sophisticated sound almost on record. Um, and and I think, you know, the fact that if you watch a year and a half of the life of Metallica and uh, the part one was, is about the recording of the Black Album, you see they spent days and days and days just getting the perfect drum sound, not even tracking the drums, just getting the perfect sound. Um, so, you know, and that was something that the band really did not do before for a variety of reasons, whether it was... You know, them being a younger band, not having the time or the money or the resources, or just doing things their own way and going in and busting it out and just doing what they wanted to do. Yeah, it's funny. I think I never really understood what Bob Rock meant by wanting to capture that live sound until recently, because on first listen, the Black Album doesn't sound very live, at least to me. But then it's like going back, listening to like live shit binge and purge 1989 where everything sounds like enormous it kind of makes sense right um yeah that, i think that recording in particular just sounds like the studio albums but just like cranked up you know, right. a lot boomier and um almost like i love the studio recordings but some of those songs feel like perfected to me in that setting yeah so um it's like he's yeah rock's intent was to capture that while still getting a kind of perfect studio sound. Um, you kind of get the best of both worlds. You, the chemistry of like their great performances after being a band for like seven, eight years and the um, 
the perfectly EQ'd and compressed studio recordings, the multi-tracked guitars and the harmonies and everything. Right. And, you know, to, you know, and Bob Rock just generally pushed this band uh, to uncomfortable territories, you know? And again, if you watch uh, Year and a Half Life Over, read any interviews with the band about this album, you know, he was pushing uh, James Hetfield's vocally. He was pushing how Kirk Hammett uh, approached solos. He incorporated a much deeper, richer bass sound than they had had on previous records, even uh, with Cliff Burton. I'm not just talking about Justice for All, where the bass was sort of hidden. Um, just mm-hmm. a much more fuller sound. And then, I mean, I feel like this is when Lars really starts developing his more signature drum sound, not his signature technique and playing. I mean, that had always been what he did. But like you said, when you hear it, you know it's Lars. And I feel like this is the real start of like, when you hear his snare drum, you know it's a Lars snare drum. When you hear, uh, you know, his crash or his bass, you all the parts of his drum set sound like him now. And I think that really was the start of this and him collaborating with Bob Rock and getting these sounds. Yeah, totally. Like every, you're right, like every part of his drum kit, you know, you hear him hit it once. It's like, that's him. You know, yeah. the flack of that snare drum, the splash cymbal, even the hi-hat to me is like super recognizable. Like no one has like an open hi-hat sound quite like Lars to me. Right. Funnily enough, makes me wonder why. Because, you know, it's partly in the drum, but um, it's in the way you hit it as well. Yeah, it's definitely a combination. And I mean, yeah. at this point, at this point, 2019, he he has, you know, his custom snare and custom God knows what else and part of his big-ass Tama drum set. So, I mean, <laughs> it, I mean, everything these guys play now are just customed for their needs and wants. And, to, and, and that's part of the reason, too, why their sound is even more signature and uh, recognizable these days because they've had everything catered to what they want and expect, you know? Totally. But yeah, you're right. Like, this is where it starts. And um, even on Load and Reload, where the production sounds like a lot more kind of relaxed to me, um, yeah. it's still it's still recognizable. Like, obviously not in setting, but like, that's the point of those albums, right? Well, you know, it's funny that our initial conversation with each other from Metallicast was about St. Anger. Um, and the Black Album is the complete opposite of St. Anger from a production standpoint. And it's funny that this is where Bob Rock started and then where they ended up together in their collaboration, just polar opposite extremes. <laughs> I can understand why um, if you're Bob Rock and Metallica after like 10 plus years of working together, you don't want to spend like six months setting up the drum kit alone anymore you know (laughs) right yeah or whatever how long it took you know but it's like there's a time and place for that um but it's like even on death magnetic and hardwired i feel like there was a lot less time spent on the nitty-gritty of that it those albums sound quite life too you know it's very much like um they had their setup they'd play and try to get the performances get the chemistry down and like it's almost like that was it you know well, and I think part of it is, you know, during the Black Album, this was them experimenting. This was them bringing in 50 different amps and, you know, uh, 
trying the drums in different rooms and in different, you know, with different amounts of foam or, or whatever they were doing just to get the perfect sound. Whereas now they have that experience. Now they mm. have, you know, the custom instruments and they have the knowledge and all these things that have come with doing it for years and years and years and years. But in, you know, 1990, when they entered the recording studio, a lot of this was foreign to them. This was really the first real big budget record. Yeah. I want to say that to this point in, yeah, 1990, 1991, Metallica are probably the heaviest band to like ever be this produced at this bigger budget. If you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have your hard rock bands, you have your like Van Halen's and Motley Crue's who, um, especially Def Leppard actually, who've had that kind of level of polish, but, um, not a band that so like occupies the base end, you know, even in standard E tuning, like one of the heaviest bands to ever do it in E. Right. Metallica. And so it's like, they're kind of creating a new approach where it's not just about base end, but atmosphere, you know, yeah. that's something that's not always just in the guitars or the bass or the drums. It's like the reverb space, the ambience, um, right. yeah. filling it up with like vocal harmonies. Yeah. Even and on a song is... like Holy Than Thou, which is relatively simple. Yeah, totally. And there was actually a quote. Um, so I, I have this book that I keep on referencing. Uh, at some point, this author, Mark Butterford, is going to give me royalties because I keep plugging it. And I know everybody <laughs> is just buying the shit out of it. It's like everybody's been buying the Black Album so much that it dropped out of the Billboard 200 last week. <laughs> um, which I think was like the first time since 1991 that's happened. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure it's happened, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, I, which reminds me, before we finish this conversation let me look it up on billboard.com and see uh if we're back in the 200 um and so i can see the place so i can see the current chart placement of the infamous black album we interrupt this podcast for some breaking news brandon totally forgot to look at the chart position of the black album and richard totally forgot to remind him thanks for absolutely nothing guys the Black Album is still not in the Billboard 200 because Metallicast does absolutely nothing to help boost record sales, even with Black Summer. On a related note, Hardwired to Self-Destruct has re-entered the Billboard 200 at number 149, and experts are thanking Metal Up Your Podcast for such an accomplishment. We now return you to your regularly scheduled podcast. This is quote... Uh, and Metallica, their own words. This is from James Hatfield in February 1992. Uh, and it relates to what you were just saying. It says at even though he's talking about uh, Sabbath True, he says, at the middle of the song Sabbath True, where it stops for six counts, you're just waiting for it to come back. It's cool and it's different for us. There's a lot of that shit happening on this record. We learned how not to fill every space with music or guitar or whatever. You're not going full out all the time. It's just growing up, man, and learning how to write and play cool shit. A lot of people just stop and knock their head against the wall and do the same album three or four times in a row. 
that's shit. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Totally. Um, I think there's a Guitar World interview where um, uh, I think James is talking about like how, yeah, you're right, like they wanted to change and, you know, they didn't want to be like Exodus or something. Doing the same old shit. Yeah. Um, hot take from James Hetfield. <laughs> well and it's funny jason yeah. long and i were talking about this in the last episode of, you know like yeah they were not slayer or overkill or testament and i know somebody out there is going to be like oh those bands release different records and this and that and slayer mm-hmm. you know had their slow groovy record and their this and whatever but not to the they were not as diverse as other bands, you know, you know, Metallica and Metallica sort of lived the way Anthrax did some different stuff, uh, you know, with hip hop, they went a little bit more commercial also in the early nineties. Um, Megadeth, you know, did some different stuff, um, here or there. And it was all done with mixed results, but Metallica were sort of the first ones to say, we're not going, this is, yeah, we love playing thrash metal, but we're not a thrash metal band. We're going to do different stuff. And if, if you read those early interviews, if you hear those early interviews, they had a vision. And, and this is not a secret. You know, they wanted world domination. And it took them 10 years. But eventually with the Black Album, they basically got it. <laughs> totally. And um, I think what they got here is completely with a piece with the band that wrote Fate to, uh, Fate to Black. You know, it's like this path was kind of laid out before them the minute they wrote that song. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, even a song like Escape is kind of an attempt at writing something more mainstream. Like, in my opinion, it didn't really work then. Um, but they got to it, you know, that kind of pop metal feel while still being heavy and pop well, and melodic. Well, it's funny because, um, you know, when people uh, think of Ride the Lightning, um, you know, they think of Fate to Black and that song, you know, that was the first song in 1984 that made the trues tell everybody that Metallica had sold out because they released a ballad. But in actuality, uh, when you read interviews with James Hetfield now, like he does not like the song Escape because he said that was like the that was the only time in their career where they made an attempt to kind of write like a radio hit because they had some pressure from the record label. And, and this was 1984. You know, it's funny that everybody focuses on Fate to Black because it's, um, you know part ballad i'll say part ballad because that whole ending mm. is anything but ballad it's part ballad but escape which is a heavier song was really their attempt to cross over into like fm radio and uh mtv even though obviously there was on a music video but it, i'm sure if it had picked up steam at radio that would have been uh something else they would have been pressured into and perhaps have done um but obviously history did not work out that way for them yeah, and like that's I guess one of the main differences between uh, Escape versus the Black Album because the Black Album's album tracks are very they're like polished and kind of perfected to the same level of the studio tracks. Um, even if you don't like them as much, there's like a lot of thought put into them. Um, yeah. Whereas Escape to me doesn't have that tightness. You know, it's like clearly a step down on that album. Yeah, to me. and again, I think that's experience and knowledge, but also. I think too the black album is just more natural. It was where it was their more natural headspace at the time, um, and again, they needed to do something different after Justice for All. The first song they started writing uh, during the process was 
enter Sandman. I mean, literally, I talked about this again. I talked about this in part one, but mm. literally, a song built on one riff, and then you see a song like "Holier Than Thou," and like you said, kind of also one riff song too, just with uh, variations along the way. Totally. Um, so the story goes with "Holier Than Thou" is that apparently Bob Rock heard like the instrumental version of the song. Yeah. And he said, hey, you know, this is going to be the first single, yeah. right? As the story goes. Um, obviously, it did not turn out to be the first single. Or any <laughs> single. <laughs> no. Or any of its but, five um, singles. <laughs> yeah. I've read a lot of interviews with Metallica since where James will say, hey, every time we um, we meet Bob Rock or whatever, we'll give him shit for like, <laughs> you know, picking out all of them now. Because like, yeah, imagine well, his... what history would look like if that happened. So that's all right. So two things here. One, James has the joke where, um, yeah, Bob Rock thought it was going to be the first single. Then he saw the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Because James Hatfield notoriously dislikes Escape uh, because, you know, of the reasons I mentioned before. But he also has gone right to saying he dislikes the lyrics too holier than that. I actually did not know that. And so I wonder if that's part of what's kept them from playing it live like that often. So there's this quote um, that I found. Um, so this is from the website songsfacts.com. Uh, it says Bob Rock, who produced the Metallica album, thought that this track was about him. Um, and actually, I have that quote. Um, in the same book as well uh, that I mentioned before, Metallica, in their own words. Oh my god, so many quotes. So many quotes. <laughs> but I mean, we are podcast professionals. Yeah, we source we... all our quotes. <laughs> uh, we are probably the most professional podcast out there. And there's not um, a lot of podcasts out there, so I feel comfortable uh... saying that, you know? We're second only to the Corpse Paint podcast. You know, those guys, I don't know about them, but, you know, they got a real thing going on. <laughs> but you know what? I, I heard their first couple episodes, and not bad, not bad. The That one guy, though, is really obnoxious. The one that keeps on saying, um, Hail Satan and Ellison, <laughs> he's really annoying. And not that that narrows it down between the two, uh, uh. but... Uh, so James Hatfield in September 1991 says, when I brought in the lyrics to Holier Than Thou, Bob Rock said, hey, is this song about me? He got real paranoid. It's more or less about the typical rock linging that goes on, slipping into the door because of name dropping and shit like that. Um, so go, to go back to songfacts.com for a moment, it says, uh, Bob Rock who produced Metallica and thought that the track was about him. In fact, it concerns singer... James Hatfield's irritation with those in the, music, in the music industry who are quick to point the finger at other people's mistakes. In a 2001 interview for Playboy magazine, the infamous Playboy interview, uh, which I feel like, Richard, I should have you on a future episode and we should just read the interview word by word um, and do voices and stuff like that. Um, I feel <laughs> yeah, like this is right in your wheelhouse. Uh, but in that interview, Hatfield rated Holier Than Thou as, quote, one of the sillier songs. I can see that. I mean, I can see where he's coming from. 
I don't know how many other Metallica songs have the word crap in them. Right. You know? it, 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 again, I think it goes back to the bluntness of the lyrics, you know, uh, where yeah. they and I feel like, th- you know, going back to my initial statement where I feel like this is one of the weaker songs, I feel like uh, there are some lines in the song that I think are really great, but no more the crapples out your mouth again. Haven't changed. Your brain is still gelatin. Gelatin. That's yeah. just an odd Silly, kind of silly lyric to me and it, it, it to me that sort of decreases the overall quality of the song um I guess that. It's a especially funny compared to other things yeah to me i mean you could compare this song to something like you know eye of the beholder which is like much more serious to me holy than that was like the fun take on that you know yeah 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 similar challenging of authority just you know a bit more upbeat in all senses of the word. And you know what's funny too is that I feel like this was, um, you know, James Hetfield would write kind of sillier lyrics on like Load and Reload, but they were done in, in like a, uh, a more sarcastic, tongue-in-cheek way. Like in Prince Charmer when he's like, hey ma, hey ma, look, it's me. Like that's not any less silly than no more the crap is out your mouth again. Haven't changed your brain is still gelatin, but it's written in a different voice. Yeah, that's kind of where the like James's Elvis thing comes from, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was playing, you know, yeah, Prince Charming, the kind of devil rock star. Um, and to build off what we were saying before too, uh, Rock recalled, which is going to lead to my second point. That was a very long first point, but this is going to lead to my second point. Rock recalled. Uh, in a 2011 interview with MusicRadar.com, how he originally saw this as a single release. Said the producer, The band still teases me about this song because it was the first track that jumped out at me as a potential single. I should point out that at this stage in cutting the record, there were no lyrics, so initially, something about the song spoke to me. It rocked in a very aggressive way that said Metallica to me. As we got deeper into the record, the tide turned and other songs blossomed and became bigger and turned into things like Inter Sandman, whereas Holier Than Thou... Great song, not a single. I still like its energy and tempo. It's got such a lethal bite to it. Every time I see the band, they always say the same thing. Holier than thou, huh? They'll never let me live it down. What can I say? So now, Richard, we have to put ourselves in a world where the Black Album is released in August 1991. And the first music video, the first song released to FM radio is holier than thou how does that change the history of not just the black album but the history of metallica as a band mm. well i feel like things would kind of have played out the same way eventually because by the time justice came out metallica really were huge they were like an enormous underground band um after that um, the year after, you know, one got nominated from a Grammy. They played on the stage itself. Um, there was that uh, album premiere party at Madison Square Garden for the Black Album. Right. So by then, I feel like the anticipation was already there. I guess it's like radio and MTV just wanted a song served up to them that could, like, feed that for the masses. But to me, I, I think there's no universe where... Enter Sandman doesn't eventually become a single. 
You yeah. Know? It, it's still yeah, the yeah. first track on that record. And um, it's not as if first singles from albums haven't, like, bunted before, if you know what right. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happens or, actually, like, a lot. I think. Or you see examples, too, where um, songs not released as singles uh, kind of cross over into the radio world as well. I mean, it, so, if you look if you look at, you know, just talk Metallica, if you look at Load, Bleeding Me, I remember that song played over and over and over again on local rock radio stations. It was never released as a formal single. Mama Said was released as a formal single, and that never crossed over into any, any into like a real big hit um, for Metallica. That's, I mean, I would consider Mama Said a deep cut, but that was technically released as a single off the record. Yeah, it's like, to a band like Metallica, what does the word single even mean? You know, yeah. it's like Master of Puppets a single. No, but like, do they have a more iconic song? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 No, that's true. I mean, when you, I always think like if Metallica, you know, if they ever come out with like the essential Metallica, you know, if, one of, <laughs> if they finally do one of those double disc greatest hits releases, I'm like, you're going, how do you even narrow it down? Especially among like the first, uh, records because you have so many fan favorite tracks, so many live staple tracks that have now become, um, you know, signature songs. It's so it's like when you look at Kill 'Em All Alone, right? It's like, all right, you gotta put on Seek and Destroy. That one to me is obvious. But how do you not include like Whiplash or The Four Horsemen yeah. or you know even Hit the Lights, which is such an important song in their history, and that has sort of become a regular part of their live show again in, uh, you know, the last 10 years or so. Um, so it's like, how do you make that decision? That, that actually would be another great uh, future episode where we compile the definitive playlist for Metallica's greatest hits. Yeah, the futility of compiling. The <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I don't have that job. Um, but, <laughs> but to... You know, uh, build off what you were saying. I definitely think Metallica were going to break over, cross over, um, anyway. But I do think that part of why um, this album became one of the best-selling albums of all time was because everything was aligned at the perfect time. And having Inter Salmon not as the first single, I think does have in effect i'm not saying metallica would not be on mtv not be on the radio not be selling on arenas would not have had the success even that they are today but i'm not sure the blackout would be in a position where it's you know nearing 20 million copies sold and uh is the best-selling album of the sound scan era do i think it would have been a number one record and sold billions yeah but I think uh, it would be viewed in history slightly different. It would not be their back in black. It would not be their thriller necessarily. It would just be their um, countdown to extinction. <laughs> oh boy! Um, I'm exaggerating a little, a little bit with that album. comparison, but no, I'm, yeah. I'm not knocking the record. Totally. It's a great record, yeah. but. But I'm just sort of I'm I'm exaggerating uh, extremes just to sort of uh, 
get the yeah. point across, but yeah. Yeah. I think um if you think about it this way, it's like the tracks on the album are songwriting, but what gets selected as the singles is marketing. And you're right that um it is so much about that early impact and the phenomenon of Metallica and the way that album changed the culture and um kind of reconfigured rock music. Uh I always say that um, Nirvana kind of killed off hair metal because they brought a sense of like emotional realism back to it. They were kind of grounded and um, not all about the ego and like guitar solos and stuff. But I think that's true of Metallica and the Black Album as well. To yes. me, this album feels a lot more down to earth than a lot of the rock music that was being made at the time. Yeah. And I guess we'll talk more about that in like future episodes. But. Um, yeah, well, I mean, to uh, to address it a little bit now, I mean, uh, part of the success of Metallica in the heavy metal genre from day one was that they were a little bit more down-to-earth, right? They were not wearing... They did not have the big hair. They were not wearing spandex. They were not doing the whole glam thing. But they also were not doing... Um, even though they were influenced by uh, bands like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, they were not doing what those bands were doing with more... Uh, whether it be more fantastical lyrics or, um, you know, the high operatic vocals, um, everything was more rooted in punk rock uh, in their in their clothes, in their overall attitude, in uh, James Hetfield's voice. I mean, uh, with with a couple exceptions like Lemmy, of course, which uh, there's I mean, I feel like. James Hatfield's help originate sort of like that that heavy metal bark that is uh you know that people associate with it a lot associate with the genre more now than uh they would have in 1981 when Metallica first broke through. Um and I just totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> yeah. I know where I wanted to pick up. So um in the last episode you talked about how this album bridge the gap between the underground and the mainstream worlds of metal but i had a thought yes. right in it from another from another perspective it's like metallic kind of left the mainstream metal of the past in the dust you think about like the glam metal and all that stuff and to me they paved the generation paved the, the way for a generation of underground bands to follow in their wake because if you think about it right they did a lot for their peers especially the big four who would not have had the same success without the Black Album's influence. But it was really the bands in Metallica's wake that benefited the most from like yeah. the Panteras and Machine Heads yeah. to New Metal and all the kind of heavier, even post-grunge that followed. Yeah, yeah. The success like wasn't for Metallica's influences. It was for the bands that influenced the followers. Yeah, and uh, that... It's something I've sort of touched upon the first two parts of Black Summer because I feel like when the Black Album was introduced to the world, rock radio had never experienced anything heavier, right? It, it's not the heaviest stuff Metallica has done, uh, but they've never experienced anything heavier. And I was touching upon, I think it was in the part one when I was talking about Inter Salmon, uh, that, you know, it grunge and nirvana they get all this credit for killing hair metal and rightfully so they deserve uh that credit 
I'm not taking anything away from Nirvana or any of those bands, but Metallica needs to be a part of that conversation too, because without them, you do not have any heavier bands crossing over. Um, and I think too, that because of Metallica, bands like Soundgarden and Alice in Chains had an easier time. Um, not just, it, it's not just Nirvana. Were they a huge factor? Absolutely. And I'm not taking anything away from them, but it's, everybody always focuses on, you know, the release of Nevermind and then everything just sort of, uh, changing. But there was a whole current happening in popular music at that time. And the Black Album needs to be, uh, included in that conversation. Uh, and without that record, you do not have, you know, the other big four bands having top 10 records. You do not have Pantera having the number one album in the country and having any kind of uh, mainstream success. You do not have, um, you know, new metal or any of these things that you just mentioned. Yeah, you don't have like major labels signing grindcore acts and death metal bands and stuff even. Right. I mean, even into the... Even in the (laughs) 2000s, like a band like Lamb of God, um, you know, were signed to a major record label and having, you know, albums in the Billboard Top 5. And that was sort of right before I feel like record sales dropped off, but um, and the music industry started to change, you know, but like you would not have had that happen, at least not on the level that it was happening for the and for the years it has happened, for the amount of years it has happened, without the Black Album having that crossover in 1991. Yeah, and even if the majority of metal bands will probably cite Puppets or Lightning as bigger influences, um, the Black Album no doubt paved the way for them. Right. Like, as yeah. much, if not more. Absolutely, yeah. And that's why I always think it's funny when you know people want to like shit on that record because there's so much in heavy even if you dislike that record for one reason or another whether because you dislike metallica or you're somebody who can only listen to the first three with cliff burden or whatever the case is whatever you cannot discredit the black album because of its importance and historical significance in producing so much uh in, in doing so much for metal as a genre of music Totally. I mean, we wouldn't be able to talk about it track by track for 10 weeks, if not, right? (laughs) (laughs) But God damn it, I would try. (laughs) So, holier than thou. We talked about before about, uh, you know, Bob Rock bringing more bass into it. We have a little uh, bass fill here, a little Jason Newstead showing off sort of his... uh, Besides the heavier bottom end that you that we've heard and in interesting and sad but true, now we're getting like full out bass on display, um, even if it's for a brief moment, uh, which as a basis I have to appreciate and acknowledge. Um, but it's also funny too when you mentioned that this is a the shortest song of the album. It's at three minutes, and the biggest thing uh, James Hetfield was freaking out about interviews after hardwired to self-destruct was that they wrote hardwired a three-minute song 
<laughs> they do not have too many yeah. uh, three-minute songs, but here you go. Uh, Holier Than Thou all these years before. Yeah, I just checked, and um, Holier Than Thou was their second shortest song up to that point, um, behind only Motor Breath. Right, yeah. Oh. So there you go. Similar spirit, I think. Just, vroom, you know? <laughs> <laughs> one more time, Speeds do that. Riffs. Do that one more time. Uh, vroom. <laughs> Actually, so, I'm trying to imitate, like, uh, not a car, it's like, a, you know, starting up a vacuum cleaner or, like, a lawnmower or some shit. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I do think, um, you know, to your point before, and, you know, I I did say I was going to play Devil's Advocate a bit, and this is a bit of a weaker song, but I do, uh, com- only compared to the other tracks on the Black Album, um, but, I mean... It's hard to really blame this song for being forgotten by some or being underrated by some. Look at what it's sandwiched between. It's sandwiched. You have the first, uh, the first five tracks on the record are "Enter Sandman," "Saba True," "Holier Than Thou," "The Unforgiven," "Wherever I May Roam." So you have four monster singles, four of the biggest metal songs of all time, and then "Holier Than Thou" sandwiched between them. <laughs> You're not wrong. I feel like the other songs, like especially on um, the second half of the record, they have more of a chance to breathe and kind of be recognized and stand out because they're among the quote-unquote deep cuts, you know, the deep tracks. Um, but Hoyer Than Thou sandwiched right there and I think can easily be forgotten or overlooked um, just because of what is around it. Um, I do think... This is a fun song. I do think it is a uh, high quality song, and I it's fun because um, you know I'm going. This is going to be surprising to you, and perhaps to others, but um, I'm going to give Megadeth a compliment. Um, Ooh, I know. I, 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 truth be told, I mean I am a Megadeth fan, but um, it's rare that I do not make fun of. Uh, my beloved Dave Mustaine and uh, David Ellefson. Oh, wait, wrong podcast. Anyways, um, <laughs> but I I think if you look at all the kind of more commercial thrash releases, at least from the big four bands, um, you know, you had Sound of White Noise by Anthrax that followed this. And that, I think, is a pretty quality record. Has some great tracks on it. Of course, content uh, to extinction is what everybody recognizes. But I, I think really the 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 album for me that um, comes second to kind of duplicating the quality of um, the Black Album in terms of bridging uh, mainstream rock, mixing it with like classic rock and thrash metal is uh, Megadeth Cryptic Writings. And... That was an album that came out in 1997, so years after the Black Album. I'm going to be honest. I thought you were going to say Euthanasia. <laughs> you know what? I in Euthanasia is a great record, and I feel uh, like that's, a I think, one of their more underrated albums. But yeah. the reason I say Cryptic Writings is because it has 
like full out two, three minute catchy thrash metal songs that are kind of follow the formula of like a holier than thou, where it's built around one or two riffs. It's short to the point, super catchy lyrics and choruses and melodies and has its hooks and whatever. Uh, but it never, uh, it, they never give it time to like, you know, take these twists and turns and go into all these, uh, you know, crazy things as Lars Ulrich would say, all these crazy wacky places. Um, they, it's just very streamlined, very concise, very to the point. And compared to what Megadeth have done in their career, very simplified. Yeah, and at that point, like, they still felt pretty vital. Although I do always get cryptic writings and Risk confused. I think Risk is where it starts going a bit bad. But Well, Risk is the one that they said, you know what, we had radio success with cryptic writings. Uh, so let's go all the way and make an experiment and do a poppier record on Risk. Um yeah. But the thing is, the reason why Cryptic Writings, I think, had some crossover success even in 1997 was because, not because of how the uh, the album sounded, or it, it was the quality of the songwriting. The quality sure. of the songwriting was there because you had these well-manufactured, streamlined, hard rock, metal, thrash metal songs. And on Risk, you had none of that. <laughs> <laughs> you have Crushem, uh, <laughs> beloved which, Crushem, which was technically a song that was played. <laughs> yes. Um, but whenever I hear, but for some reason, um, I always come in terms of big four albums, the Black Album Cryptic Writings are always two albums that I find comparable even though obviously the Black Album is its standalone behemoth of a thing. But it's also funny enough, perhaps I do that because uh, the Black Album was my introduction to Metallica and Cryptic Writings was my introduction to Megadeth. Um, right. Funny enough. So maybe that's why I do it. But um, yeah, I, I just find a lot of parallels between those albums. And I find it funny that Metallica was doing it in 1991 and Megadeth was doing it in 1997. The same year where Metallica was doing like Low Man's Lyric and other wacky, yeah. crazy things. <laughs> well, and that's Megadeth cast for you. <laughs> now that we've dissected the Cryptic Writings album, let's now go in detail, track by track. So, uh, on an episode of All Holier Than Thou, have we talked enough about Holier Than Thou? Is there anything else to uh, say about this beloved track on the Black Album? This is a fan favorite. As you mentioned before, it's not been performed um, live a lot. When I went to Metallica.com, which has all the stats, I believe it had been performed. And I'm, you can tell me if I'm wrong, just like you all love to do. Uh, but I believe it was 87 times. It was around there, 87, 88, 89. It was under 90 times. Yeah. Well, hopefully their own website isn't wrong. But I do want to say <laughs> that um, it, it has been sounding really good live as of late. So yeah, it's stood the test of time in its own way. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, for a song that James Heffield dislikes, at least lyrically, 
I feel like it's, it holds up pretty strong. Um, and, but I think that's the thing with uh, Metallic Records in general is that they're all pretty timeless. And uh, even the weakest Metallica tracks out there, I mean, I would still, I'm obviously biased, but I would, I would still put them above uh, the worst of most any other band. So, yeah, no, I agree. At least they're more interesting, right? And I and I was actually uh, at the gym today, and I was listening to some Metallica. Um, as you can see, Richard, I work out a lot. I'm shredded. Hey. Um, I can say that because. This is a podcast. It's not a visual. Um, so you do not yes. know when I am lying, which I most definitely am not now. <laughs> sure. But Richard, tell them I'm not lying. He's not lying. Thank you. I take back the yelling before when I said no mother crap was out your mouth again. Because that definitely was not crap rolling out your mouth. Your brain is Rolls definitely not in. gelatin. <laughs> uh, but I was... I just had Metallica on shuffle. And... Um, you know, the uh, like a song like Better Than You came on, and I was like, which is, I think Better Than You is the worst single Metallica has ever released. I think it's one of the weaker songs in their catalog. Uh, but if you take a look at a song like that, or you take a look at a song like, you know, Slither Off Reload, or whatever the, you know, whatever song does it, like, does not do it for you in the catalog, at least compared to others, I, they, always make something interesting or something catchy out of uh, uh, something that might not be as strong as um, what you're used to. Yeah. I think that still have their place. And sometimes those kinds of songs sound better. Like when you remove them from the album context, just in isolation, kind of appreciate them without having to compare them to what's around them. You know, as you said about holier than now. I agree, and that's why uh, I suggest everybody goes and listens to St. Anger and does not put it in context of the rest of the Metallica catalog. Correct, Richard? Uh, sure. <laughs> that's one way you can put it. Um, Richard, how, how happy would you be if I had decided to do... Um, oh, oh, there it is. Is it always on standby? So for... Obviously, uh, this is not a visual thing, so you cannot see, but Richard is currently flashing the St. Anger CD uh, to me, which means he just has it on standby next to him at all times. Do you ever, leave your, do you ever leave your house without it? Uh, sometimes, but then it's going to be on at least two devices. So, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, it's wallet, keys, St. Anger. <laughs> yep, more or less. Uh, how happy would you have been if I had done um, Metallica's Angry Summer? Um, very happy, but I feel like the Metallica <laughs> militia would be saying, no more, the crap rolls out your mouth here. Uh, and I feel like that's a good part, a good spot to end. Unless you have anything else to say about Holier than thou you are. I think you said it best. Richard, this was a pleasure. This is the officially our shortest episode that we've done together. Or actually, hmm. the We Did It Again oh. episode might have been shorter. Yes. Or around the same. But, um, you know, I guess this makes up for uh, 
talking three hours about MTV Icon Metallica. (laughs) (laughs) The things we talk about, sometimes I'm not sure how we talk about it for so long. Neither. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a pleasure as always. Richard, I see. Where can everybody find you on the social media? I'm on Twitter on at Richard, R-I-C-H-A-O-D. You can find links to my work there, hopefully. Um, uh, So right now, I'm in the process of having my debut singles mixed and mastered. So hopefully those will be coming soon as well. They are not that metal, but... um, I'm sure the influence of Metallica is there if you dig deep enough into my brain. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, let me know when they are done. I will be sure to tweet them out to the Metallica, to the Metallica militia. um, And I'll make sure that each and every one of them listens to it, downloads it, buys it, whatever you need them to do. Otherwise I will go to their house and I will (laughs) kick the crap so it rolls right out of their mouth again hey i'm gonna just keep on saying this in different variations over and over and over again it is very catchy it is you know what i'm sold it's a quality lyric i take back what i said (laughs) i want to hear it done in like dave mustaine's voice (laughs) that is actually a very dave mustaine lyric i feel like it is yeah Ooh, no more the crap was out your mouth again. <laughs> he needs no. He needs. I can't. I cannot roll the R's. He needs. He would roll the R on crap. Ooh, no more the crap was. <laughs> you know what? That I'm, can be. <laughs> that can be your next project. Re-recording all of the Black Album vocals. <laughs> Take my stage voice. Listen, he already wrote all the riffs. So. I know. Hey, you know something I did want to bring up, <laughs> kind of unrelated. Um. I think it was a week ago or something, James Hetfield on Instagram posted a video of him driving in his truck yes. to Slayer's Angel of Death while yes. singing along, which fully blew my mind because right? A, unexpected, B, he sounds amazing. Yeah, right. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping one of two things is happening. Or I'm hoping one, uh, we're getting another covers album. After we get SM2. I'm I'm completely cool with SM2 followed by Garaging 2. Um, I'm completely cool with that. Just saying. Uh, and two, I'm hoping that's a hint of uh, where some of the new music that they are hopefully writing is uh, heading in direction-wise. Get some uh, yeah. really thrashy, yeah. riffy stuff going on. With Pardon. some of that, Bark, yeah! Rather than the, ooh! <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what we need too. Just like a big four covers album where they all cover like one song from each other. That because that would be too much fun. That'd be too much fun. <laughs> and if there's like, uh, and if there's one thing Carrie King hates, other... it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So follow Richard S C on social media at R I C H A O D. Follow Metallicast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Metallicast Pod. Um, I'm trying a new thing out, Richard, which you are uh, one of the few members of. Uh, I discovered this new app called Flick Chat. F L I C K Chat. 
It is uh, designed as basically a forum for podcasts. Um, and I think it would be a cool way to interact with the Metallicast Militia. Um, have, you can download the app on your phone. You can search for the code word Metallicats and join the group. You Once you're in the group, you can interact with everybody who's in there. You can create your own groups. Right now, we only have six members, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it grows and we can have some conversations, um, you know, about Metallica, about the current podcast episode, about metal music in general, or about whatever else you wacky, crazy people want to talk about. I know that you listen, so let's talk, all right? Yeah, it's this cool little thing. It's like having Metallica in your pocket, you know, 24-7. In who does not you around. and who <laughs> else does not want that right i'm taking over your twitter i'm taking over your facebook taking over your instagram and now let me take over your phones entirely with flick chat by the way they're not sponsored me i'm not paid by them <laughs> i mean they should but they should and i would accept it um but that reminds me too before i forget um we have some people on twitter and on flick chat who have commented on Holier Than Thou. Um, so this, I'll, I'll start with Twitter first, um, since they're the shorter messages, because on FlickChat, you're not limited by a certain amount of characters, Richard. You just can speak your mind for as long or as little as you want. Um, but these fine folks interacted on Twitter with their limited character count. Um, Gary McGorm at Gary McGorm says the Black Album Secret Weapon always loved this thrashy throwback. Uh, Miriam at Realist Miriam writes, it's an absolute great song. Don't think it gets all the attention that it deserves, but I love it. I blast it whenever I'm feeling super badass. And how often do you feel super badass? Uh, good question. Like, sometimes not enough as I would like. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you need to listen to more holier than thou. Maybe I do. <laughs> and then finally... <laughs> Maybe I my, need to karaoke it. If you karaoke it, I will play it on Metallicast if you record it. <laughs> I don't have the Dave Mustaine voice, unfortunately. But... <laughs> Ooh, no more the crap is out your mouth again. <laughs> but you do. I need... Here's what I need somebody to do. I need I need somebody who can roll their R's like Dave Mustaine. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, you're not listening to enough Dave Mustaine. And I need somebody to record at least that one line and send it to me. All right? Um, but Ralph, my buddy Ralph. Ralph is great, Richard. Do you know Ralph? Yeah. Um, Ralph Savannah. He wrote quite the post on Flick Chat. Yeah. He did. Because he's not limited by characters. Did I mention that yet? He just has an open forum to speak his mind and write as much as he damn well pleases uh, on Flick Chat. Uh, but he writes, Dig the song, one of the more thrashier tunes in the album, which is always a plus for me. Lyrical content is pretty straightforward, like the message Hetfield is delivering here. I always have, however, found his choice of the word crap at the beginning of the song is kind of odd. Maybe they were trying to keep it clean for radio, as I think Bob Rock suggested holier be the lead single off the album. Anyone correct me if I'm wrong, please. You are not wrong, sir. Um, 
He adds, Hammond has a short and sweet solo towards the end, and even Jason gets a brief moment to shine right after. Solid job by all on the song overall, but the song kind of gets ignored as there are so many other hits off the record. I'd really enjoy a chance to see the song played live for sure. Um, and again, he mentions Jason Newstead, uh, his brief moment to shine, and which reminds me of a tweet I almost forgot, my apologies, at M. P-R-A-U-88, the pizza, he calls himself on the Twitter. All he wrote in response to my question about thoughts in the song, in all capitals, was bass solo. Because every song needs more bass. All right, Richard. Mm. Judge not the CB judge yourself, Richard. Stop judging me. You burn your bridges, but then you'll just build them back with wealth. Judge not. The CB just yourself. Ooh, I did the Hatfield into the Mustang that time. A beautiful and terrifying. <laughs> All right. I've babbled on long enough. This is the longest ending in Metallica's history. This, this uh, <laughs> download Flick Chat, do the code Metallicast, join the conversation. I would love for that to grow beyond six members and maybe it'll become a thing, maybe it will not be a thing, but. Like I said, you're not limited by characters like you are on Twitter. Even though Twitter's still a great way to uh, keep in touch with me and the Metallicast Militia at Metallicast Pod on there, as well as Facebook and Instagram. Do not forget Oso. I'm just trying to create as many ways as possible where you can interact with the show. You can email Metallicast at fans.experts.com. You can leave a voicemail at the Metallicast hotline, 203-548-0609. If you want to send me a message about the Black Omar or a specific song that is coming up, since we're going chronologically next week will be the Unforgiven, so on and so forth, then I'll be more than happy to play or read your message on the air, as I just did with these fine folks. As always, Richard, we end with a cover. There's not a lot of holier-than-thou covers out there. I did check out a couple, uh, which you had mentioned to me on Flick Chat, which I'm going to keep on saying until they pay me, damn it. Um, there's a Devil Driver cover out there, which I listened to, and I... Eh, <laughs> it's not bad it's not bad it, you know what it, when I listened to the cover I was like I, I just got the impression that they were like doing it for a paycheck and they're competent yeah. enough musicians where you know they can do a decent enough job of it but they, it was just sort of flat there was no like energy there you know fun fact I looked up um uh, an interview or like a press release around the time they did this because they recorded it I think for a Metal Hammer tribute to the Black Album and yeah. someone asked Des Fafra um, what made you pick Holier Than Thou for this recording and he went on and said something about how influenced he was by Master of Puppets <laughs> exactly what I just said <laughs> Yeah, exactly what I just said I think it was a paycheck um, I think those coal chamber royalties were not what they once were, and Des needed some uh, to you know pay off some credit card debt or something. Um, yeah. But I will be paying. I will be playing a cover um, it, from uh, Chuck Billy and Alex Skolnick, both from Testament, but it's not the full Testament band, not the full Testament lineup. Um, as far as I can tell, this is from an album called Metallic Attack: The Ultimate Tribute. Um, and while I think they also recorded this song for a paycheck, they do a much uh, finer version of it, in my opinion. It's uh, 
just all around, I thought it was uh, it, it was better. Just all around was yeah. better. I'm going to leave it at that. Um, I'll play you the Chuck Billy version. Go check out the Devil Driver version. You can let me know on social media or on Flick Chat which one you think is better. Which one do you think is better, Richard? Um, I'm going to say the Chuck Billy just because Alex Gornick is a great musician. So He is a great musician. And I discovered uh, today that, uh, just as a side note, he started uh, the Alex Golnick Trio, which is like a jazz trio. And they do covers of hard rock and metal songs. And he did a cover of Fade to Black. So mm. uh, name me a, a jazz trio cover that Dez did, okay? You cannot, okay? Therefore, their version was chosen. Their version is better. I'm really just babbling now. Till next time, ladies and gentlemen, metal up your ass. Yeah! Not!
Fast non-experts.